Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. And we recently realized it's hard to assess a politician who has virtually no political record. But with Donald Trump, we tried anyway. And we wound up with stories and lessons from the record he does have in business and on TV. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Since the dawn of the moving pictures, Asian characters in American media have never really gotten fair treatment. They're portrayed as murderous masterminds like Fu Manchu. It is said that the devil plays for men's souls. So does Dr. Fu Manchu. Satan himself, evil incarnate. And as Confucian sages like Detective Charlie Chan. Justice like virtue brings its own reward. And as bumbling caricatures like Mickey Rooney's Mr. Yunioshi in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Now, some of you might say, Lauren, those examples are a million years old. That's not how it is now. And sure, there are a few American movies and TV shows that center Asian experiences. But there are still a ton of Hollywood projects looking to cast Asian actors as tech geeks or submissive sex objects. And I can't even get into the number of white people who are still cast to play Asian characters. Honestly, I don't understand. Emma Stone, literally the whitest actor around, playing someone who is a quarter Chinese and a quarter native Hawaiian. I'm tempted to say menehune, like Hawaiian leprechauns. <laughs> I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on The Big Listen, we invite you to open your ears to some of the great conversations happening in the wide world of audio today. And one of the conversations that people are having right now is about representation in popular media. Marvin Yue thinks a lot about this. He's a podcast host and the managing director of the Potluck Podcast Collective, an organization that promotes Asian American podcasts. I didn't really notice the absence of Asian representation until I saw Asian representation. It was 1995, and Yue happened to catch a TV show called All American Girl, starring comedian Margaret Cho. Margaret, do you know why I encourage your brother to become a cardiologist? No. Because I always knew that one day you'd give me a heart attack. What are you wearing? Soon, Yue was joining Asian American forums on the very early internet. In the late 90s, he discovered a social networking site called Asian Avenue. Through that, I started finding out about other Asian American arts. And I remember going down this rabbit hole of watching Asian American films. And I started following John Cho from um, American Pie. He Netflixed the actor's entire filmography. Then he found out that Cho had a band and listened to all of his music. And from there, you had discovered other Asian-American filmmakers, musicians, and artists. Once it clicked that there was Asian-Americans making stuff that was specifically Asian-American as a cultural thing, I was 100% in. The media you was consuming spoke to him in a way that other popular media didn't. There's a point in time where I didn't know what the top 40 hits were because I was just listening to, you know, Asian-American music that I bought, like, online. <laughs> A few years ago, he added podcasts to his media diet, and soon, Yue started making his own. And when he realized that there were other Asian-American creators out there producing shows for a similar audience, he knew he found his people. We'll hear more from Yue in a bit about how the collective is slowly moving the needle on Asian-American invisibility in media. But first, we're going to talk about a different kind of invisible thing. Grief. In 2014, Nora McInerney's father and husband died just weeks apart from each other. 
Oh, and she had a miscarriage, too. And at the time, she was the mother of a small child. So as you might imagine, life was pretty rough. I was feeling things that don't even have words and sometimes feeling nothing at all because depression. But I was not completely insane. And I knew that, like annoying people like to say, the world would keep spinning. The sun would shine again. It's always darkest before the dawn. And any other astrological or meteorological phrase that people like to throw around when bad things happen. McInerney took her story of loss and made it into something beautiful, a podcast that confronts what grief actually is on a more granular level. But her show, Terrible, Thanks for Asking, really isn't an endless sob sort of situation. Trust me. Sure, I shed a tear, two or twelve, listening to it. But I also laughed out loud. Because that's life, isn't it? How do I want to die? In my sleep, probably. (laughs) Very peacefully. (laughs) And not in any... That's actually my biggest fear, is dying in a very tragic way, or like a very painful way. Fast. Oh, that's a difficult question. (laughs) Peacefully. Um, Unafraid. Old age? In my sleep. Isn't that everybody's kind of like hope, I guess? Nora McInerney, host of Terrible, thanks for asking. (laughs) Welcome to the big listen. Do you like how I said that? (laughs) I couldn't figure... I I was trying to say it the way that you say it. Terrible. Thanks for asking. I, I, are you trying to make fun of my accent? No, no, I wasn't trying to make fun of your accent. I was trying to get your <laughs> diction right. Because you have to think of, um, you're answering a question, and the question is, "Hey, how are you?" Terrible. Thanks for asking. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I was just on an airplane, and as I was boarding, um, there was a woman crying on the plane in first class, and oh. I wanted. To do so, like I wanted to help her, but then I was like, "Nope, not gonna happen." Private pain, I cannot get involved in that. And I feel like maybe you would have some guidance on like what to do if you see a person publicly suffering. I don't know. There's sometimes when you see somebody crying, and often it will be me. And mm-hmm. um, I, most people just ignore it mm-hmm. and. I don't know. One time this girl was crying next to me in the airport and she was clearly in the worst relationship. And her boyfriend or husband was like breaking up with her or just being awful. Also, she was sitting directly next to me. There were a lot of other seats that she could have chosen. Mm -hmm. So I just got up and I got her I got her a a treat at the like I was getting up to get coffee and I just got her like a little little coffee um, and like mouth like forget this guy. Yeah. Uh, But not always. It's not like I always do that. I think. I don't know. Sometimes I just like to make eye contact with people, give them a little, yeah. you know, salute, little head nod, like, I see you. Right. You're crying. I've been crying before. Right. Uh, I think just recognizing uh, that somebody's going through something and that obviously they're, you're boarding a plane. She knows she's in first class and she's going to have to watch the entire yeah. plane file by her that she's on display. Also, right. I'd like to apologize for responding, oh, God, when you told me and <laughs> laughing a little bit. I have a hard time <laughs> reacting appropriately to situations. <laughs> I, you know, I love that. I love that. Is there um, one question that you hated to be asked or sort of one platitude that you hated to be told, you know, in the wake of your husband's death and your father's death? The first two that come to mind yeah. are you're so strong. Oh, OK. Because it's I truly not. Um, or maybe I am, but it isn't like I chose to be. It's just that there is no other choice because right. my child needs me because even if I didn't have a child, I would still have bills. I would still have a life. Yeah. I would still, my body would still wake up 
every day and the world would need something from me. So yeah. it's it, it's it's truly just like you're just doing things. You're doing things you don't even realize that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And the second one is let me know if there's anything I can do. Oh, so that's very unhelpful. It's it's so unhelpful. It's saying to somebody, it's your problem to um, mm. let me know what you need when you have no idea what you need. And then also to um, match your need against my uh, skill level and also the level of intimacy we have. Okay. <laughs> because okay. because people, you know, the people who showed up and just did stuff were often people that I would have never called in a million years. And all of a sudden, this 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 woman I know is in my house and, you know, we've we've met a few times, but she's there and she's she's cleaning my house Mm -hmm. and it's happening. And I didn't have to ask her. And I you know normally would be like, no, please sit down. Let me get you something. But it's happening. And Mm -hmm. I didn't have to ask. And my my neighbor, I wake up one day and I hear something on my roof and I just know that is my neighbor getting the snow off my roof. Yeah. <laughs> we we live in Minnesota and um somebody had said to me many thousands of people had said to me let me know if there's anything I can do and I was having this desperate day the kind of day where you just feel like I'm going to I'm going to snap in half mm-hmm. and out of me just 10,000 bats will fly. <laughs> and and yeah and and I'm I'm just all of like the darkness is going to pour out of me and I'm going to snap like a twig. Mm-hmm. So when I'm in this feeling, I'm saying, you know, you know, what would help me? And I know this from experience just for me, not for everybody, but I need to go outside. I need to run until until I can't run anymore. Mm-hmm. So I call somebody and so, who had said, let me know if there's anything I can do. And I tell her, um, I feel like I'm going to have a mental breakdown. Could you come over and just stay with Ralph so I can just go for a run? Mm-hmm. And she says, so I have plans. Like I'm going to <gasps> yoga, but if there's... <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm like, why did you tell me you were going to yoga? Like, you could have no. just said, uh, like, you could have said anything. Right. And I was like, I just the shame I felt for asking okay. somebody for something yeah. that they weren't willing to give me, which I thought, I was like, what is the smallest thing I can ask someone for? Right. Just to hang out with my child for for 30 minutes. And I was like, I'm never asking anyone for every, anything ever again. Right. Ever again. No, it reminds me of, of one of your recent episodes with um, the sister and mother of Harris Whittles. He was a TV writer. He worked on Parks and Rec and and he died of a heroin overdose and his family went to go and clean out his um, his apartment in L.A. and they just like couldn't function. When we went to L.A. to pack up his house um, the night before we started to pack up for him, they had a huge tribute for him at a comedy club. And UCB. All of his people were there. You know, Amy Poehler, Aziz, everybody was there. It was huge. It was wonderful. It was sad. It was everything. And uh, Stephanie and I literally got up on Sunday morning and sat on the floor and said, I don't, we, how, how, how do you do this? We were immobile. We couldn't move. I mean, it was horrible. And the doorbell rang, and we opened the door, and there were all of his people with boxes and tape and food and everything. And they took over. They didn't leave us for a week until it was all done. 
those were those people those those were great people that moment made me publicly cry on an airplane what an act of kindness that was, um, both for their friend who they lost, but also for the family, because you're doing something without being asked. And you're doing something that is so monumental, but also is so mundane, mm-hmm. which is most of the things that follow death yeah. are those two things. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to shut down somebody's cell phone yeah. account. When you do that for yourself... You're like, bye, AT&T. When right. you do it for someone who's dead, you're like, who's going to get this number now? And do they know that this number belonged to the best person who ever lived? Will right. they cherish this phone number the way that they're supposed to? Yeah. And so just, yeah, showing up and doing something. And that's what I tell people. Just pick a thing and do it. Mm-hmm. Like, send a gift card. I bought the only reason Ralph continued to eat every day was because... I was given so many grocery store Mm. gift cards Wow! (laughs) that I knew that I could definitely buy groceries Mm -hmm. and where I could go to get them. I didn't have to think about it. I was like, this says Whole Foods. That's a store. Right. We're going here. (laughs) So obviously now now you have this, you you sort of parlayed your own story um, into a podcast and sort of about, you know, how you, how you, continue trundling along when the most terrible things happen to you. And I feel like now you're sort of like mired in other people's sad stories or or do you see it in a different way? I do see it in a different way, but also I've always kind of been a person who my grandpa was this way too, which mm-hmm. was always embarrassing, but wherever he went, somebody would t- talk to him immediately mm-hmm. and tell them very personal things. And I would be eight years old, like, I just really, can we get back on the road? We were just supposed to be <laughs> pumping gas. Now you like, who's this guy? Why is he right. crying? Like, just what's going on? Uh, can I get a root beer? What, like, <laughs> you've not answered that question. Um, and that's kind of always who I've been. Mm-hmm. You know, I've just always had, I've always been, um, the person that people say things to or tell mm-hmm. things to. And I think what I'm being asked is like, is that a bummer? Sometimes, yes, obviously, you will hear something and be like, why is the world so terrible? But also, I think, I, I don't know, I think it's kind of an honor to be the kind of person that someone mm-hmm. would want to tell these things to. Mm-hmm. I started the podcast because I had so many messages from so many people and they'd reached out because they had found you know, the story of uh, of Aaron dying and Aaron and I had written his obituary before he died mm-hmm. and it went viral and people found, you know, the blog that I kept when he was sick mm-hmm. and people weren't just reaching out to be like, oh, I'm so sorry about your husband, but oh, I'm so sorry about your husband and this similar thing or this thing happened to me and nobody asked me about it or I've never talked about it or I want to talk about it and I don't know how and Everybody has something like that, something that they think is better left unsaid, Mm -hmm. but that they would really like the opportunity to share at least with the people around them or the people who love them. I don't know. Like, I I try not to think of it as a bummer experience. I try to think of it as like as like something really special. Nora McInerney is the host of Terrible, Thanks for Asking, from American Public Media. She's also the author of the book, It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too. To find out more about her work, check out biglisten.org. 
Now, remember our pal Marvin Yue from the top of the show? He's one of the founders of the Potluck Podcast Collective. It's a loosely organized group of Asian-American podcasters whose shows all approach their respective topics through an Asian lens. Their shows about Asian and Pacific Islander authors, Korean TV, and the American Muslim female experience. On one of the shows, Asian Americana, I learned all about the origin of boba. Boba or bubble tea is a drink, often tea but sometimes coffee, juices, slushes, or other beverages, with little chewy pearls of tapioca, or sometimes also other toppings, floating around at the bottom. Mmm, delicious! It makes me want to go grab some green tea boba right now. Yue grew up in the San Gabriel Valley just outside of Los Angeles, which has a huge Asian population. Lots of Asian cultures, Vietnamese, Taiwanese, Korean, etc., were represented in his day-to-day life. U.S. still lives in the L.A. area where he produces three podcasts of his own. For Asian listeners outside of major population hubs, the shows in the collective have been a way to find community. There's this woman from uh, Vermont who wrote to us and just thanked us for just having conversations and talking about things that she wishes she had people to talk to about. Uh, Things like relationships with parents or things like you know, our feelings about the latest whitewashing controversy, they're listening to people that they can connect with, even when they're living in in a place where they can't connect on a level with the people around them. Which is why it makes sense that they call themselves potluck. The best potlucks, the ones where everyone doesn't bring salad, are about connection and a shared experience. Potlucks are actually a very big part of growing up at least Asian-American in Southern California. I remember going to a potluck every other weekend with my parents' friends. And that turned out to be something that most of the collective members could relate to. It's time for a quick break now. But when we come back, we'll hear about the struggle of composing music for podcasts from musician J.D. Sampson of La Tigra. It's funny, but I started off with some material. And Julie was like, "Mm, more boring. And then I sent her some more. Oh, more boring. And it just like we went through that process like 10 times. First, we're going to talk to Helen Zaltzman of The Illusionist about the pitfalls of hosting a show about language. I have had to get over a lot of my natural pedantry and a lot of my linguistic peeves that I'd held for a really, really long time. That's coming up next. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. My name is Swapna Jairaman and I'm calling from Bloomington, Indiana. Um, I wanted to call in and say that I listen to a variety of podcasts, but there's one that I'm constantly waiting for it to get released every time there's a new episode, and that is called An Inexact Science. This is An Inexact Science. My name is Lisa Cantrell. Here we go. She deals with the topics like, you know, how babies learn, um, how people think about uh, relationships. It is that insane feeling that makes you want to stay up all night with another person. It drives us to write poetry, music, make art. It is one of the most all-consuming emotions known to our species. Um, that's all I had. I have another call coming in, but thanks for the opportunity. Bye. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And honestly, I got to say, I love that our friend from Indiana just hung up on us because she had another call coming in. 
priceless. Love it. Well, if you want to tell us what you're listening to and then abruptly hang up, we're into it. The pod line number is 202-885-POD1. Now, when I was a kid, my mom used to correct my grammar all the time. If at the dinner table I'd say I was done, Killake, a.k.a. my mom, would respond, cakes are done, people are finished. So to this day, improper usage of words, poor grammar, even the questionable deployment of a semicolon drives me bonkers. But of course, I'm constantly making language mistakes myself. I've probably made a million in this show so far. Please don't email me about them, okay? We are all making mistakes all the time, except maybe Helen Zaltzman. This is The Allusionist, in which I, Helen Zaltzman, find language sitting by a well, falling in love with its own reflection. In which I, Helen Zaltzman, feed language after midnight. In which I, Helen Zaltzman, catch language stealing from the church plate. In which I, Helen Zaltzman, swipe right on language. Zaltzman is, among other things, a very clever Brit with a medieval English degree from Oxford. So she is uniquely qualified to dive into language and all of its idiosyncrasies. Helen Zaltzman, host of The Illusionist. Welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you so much for having me. So are there, I feel like um, there are words that are used wrong in print and in radio all the time. And I hear it and and, um, and I see it and I get really cranky about it. Does it even matter, do you think, if we're, if we're using words correctly anymore? And I, I feel like you've you know, you've touched on this in, in uh, a couple of your episodes, you know, sp- specifically about like <laughs> the dictionary and how that's changed. Yeah. In the course of making The Illusionist, I have had to get over a lot of my natural pedantry and a lot of my linguistic <laughs> peeves that I'd held for a really, really long time. Because, first of all, a lot of the rules were made up a couple of hundred years ago by a small group of men who decided Uh that English should behave like Latin and it doesn't. So they were fitting. It's like when you're trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together and you're just stubbornly refusing to accept that you're putting two pieces together that do not fit. That's what they were like (laughs) with the language, but those things stuck. And so I think, well, they don't get to say how we use it. And the fact is the language behaves how its users want it to behave really and mm-hmm. so i do have certain frustrations that i still feel physically nauseated by <laughs> in in language use but such as well shush shush stop trying to just stop trying to send me back to it a if less I said, healthy time if i said irregardless would it turn your stomach now i would just think that that was kind of a quaint error and I, right. I, I had a, a real thing for a number of years about um, the word panini, you know, the Italian sandwich, <laughs> because that is a plural word. We imported a plural word. Be... The singular panino. is panino, but then we, plur- <laughs> we pluralized panini, so it's paninis. And yeah. that, was, that was infuriating to me for many years. So I was like, well, why didn't we just import the singular word and, and say paninos? That would have been paninos. fine. Paninos. But then I realized agenda is originally a plural word and I'm happy to slap an S on the end of that. Right. So I think it's right. just the Agen- amount of... So it would be agendum would be the singular? I don't... I mean, see, the what thing is, I don't... Be? I, I, this is like data. You oh, know? yeah. And I can't stand it or when people medium. Are, yeah, when people say, 
well you you can't say you can't say data as a singular and i think it's just the length of time a word has been in the language the more assimilated it is the less annoyed yeah. i am at that so panini that would be newer than data and um, agenda and all of that because also i don't i don't approve of putting a latin plural onto these things we've brought it into english <laughs> Make make it behave like the other ones. Right. Anglicize <laughs> it. Right. Exactly. I love that you would walk past a sandwich shop and just get enraged if yeah. you saw like a, you know, a little menu outside <laughs> and it said panini and you would just be like, no, well, not I, I again. I didn't mind if it said panini, but if it said paninis, then I think. <laughs> Can I get my red pen out and fix this? So, so, so if you ever if you ever go to a sandwich shop, do you order a panino? Never. I can't. <laughs> I can't say it. I can't bring myself to say, "I'll have a panini, please." Uh, that sandwich would that... give me no pleasure. <laughs> I think my greatest linguistic contribution so far uh, is the word portmanteau, which is uh, a hashtag I use on Twitter. <laughs> Portmanteau port port no, to, uh, to attach to terrible portmanteau terms, uh, words that are half one word, half another word, because um, I did an episode early on in the run of the show about the word brunch. And ever since then, if I see something hilarious and terrible, like um, there was a beauty product I saw called Womanity. Um, I'll take a picture of that with the hashtag portmanteau. <laughs> People will send me all sorts of um, all sorts of horrific things. There are a lot of foodstuffs where they've gone portmanteau-ish. And uh, to be honest, I really yeah. enjoy them. I'm not complaining. <laughs> but it's interesting because it's, um, y- you know, it's, it, it is, I think portmanteaus are um, an example of how language is constantly changing and evolving. And it's, it's, it's this living entity and people change it to, sort of suit their needs or um or create words to suit their needs and um and actually you talked about this um in an episode where you had trans folks and non-binary people come on and talk about how they talk about their bodies so there's actually a lot of different contexts in which genitals come up and there's different language for each of them. For me, as someone who was assigned female at birth, has a vagina, has a uterus, but mostly passes as male, there's a lot of different things that go into what I'm choosing to call my genitals. I sometimes refer to my genitalia as anachronistic, which seems to, to fit perfectly. Uh, I have a friend who refers to my genitalia as uh the factory installed equipment. My name is Matty and I am both transgender and asexual. And both these things influence how I relate to my body and the words that I use for it. Asexuality means different things to different people. And I also think about how people have evolved to use the they, them pronoun as a singular pronoun for people who sort of don't want to use the binary she, her and he, him. Does it delight you when people adapt language you know, for their own uses, or does it does it frustrate you, or is it just like obviously this is how language works? Exactly, exactly. There are so many things that we probably haven't even realised were at some point artificial seeming at the time they were introduced and seemed against the rules and so on, and we use them perfectly happily because they're so right. Um, very early in the show, I interviewed a man who invents new Latin terms. Uh, there's a, he works at a Finnish radio station where they do a news broadcast once a week in Latin. Principes Ukraine, Russia, Germania, Franco Gallie. 
Nunti Latini, that's Latin for news in Latin, goes out every Friday evening just before the main news, and it is the world's only news bulletin in classical Latin. And it's now the Finnish broadcasting company's longest-running show. What began kind of as an experiment caught on around the world and remains very popular amongst Latin enthusiasts, particularly students and priests. Each week, They've done this since the late 80s, and obviously the news <laughs> contains... Uh, references to things that the ancient Romans did not have, like the internet and aeroplanes. And I said, well, how, you, how do you go about doing that? Contrary to popular belief, Latin is not that different from modern languages. For example, obviously, before computers, we didn't have in Finnish any words for computers, but what we just made some up. It's the same thing for Latin. A computer in English is actually more or less based on Latin, the verb Computo means to calculate, so computer becomes computatrum, an instrument of calculating. So that's something that happens in language all the time, and therefore it's not so different doing it in Latin. And I thought, fair yeah. point, yeah. fair point. Um, over the course of your show, is there anything that you happened upon that just totally surprised you about language or or the way that we use it or the way that it's it's evolved? Uh, I interviewed a linguist um, uh, who um, she's she's American, but she works in Britain. And um, a lot of her research is in the differences in how the two countries use uh-huh. English. And um, in England, you'll preface a request with please. You'll have it at the beginning of the sentence, um, which in many contexts in the US would be rude or belittling. Mm-hmm. And also when, when you order food, here you'd probably say please could i have the burger right and that might come across differently there where you say well once i said um could i have the pork please mm-hmm. and the waiter said yes and then when he brought everyone else's food he didn't bring me anything he said oh i just thought you were asking whether it was possible for you to have the pork <laughs> that, and that person is a jerk uh, and should be fired <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, it's a jerk that I almost respect how literally <laughs> he interpreted the uh, subjunctive that I used. Um, but that was a very educational experience for me. Um, Helen Zaltzman, host of The Allusionist from Radiotopia. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us and chatting about language. It's been an absolute pleasure. Helen Zaltzman is the host of The Illusionist from Radiotopia. To find out more about her show, go to biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another quick break, but when we come back, we'll catch up with DJ and musician J.D. Sampson about the art of taking feedback. I did really appreciate the criticism, to be honest. As an artist, sometimes you don't get that. You know, people are just like, okay, this is your work, that's it. But I love when people criticize me. It's great. That's right after the break. Stick around. This is NPR. Hi, I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith from NPR's Planet Money podcast, a business and economics podcast for everyone, even if you don't think you like business and economics. Every week, we find stories that help make the world make a little more sense. Like, why is milk in the back of the store? How did credit reports get started? Or where does North Korea get its money? Listen to Planet Money on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Kia calling from Tacoma Park, Maryland. 
Um, and I, my husband and I are both very taken with uh, the Notable Woman podcast. Notable Women, hello. How are you? I hope that you are having the most amazing and fabulous day. I really am because I got to talk to Janet Allison. The host is Kristen Downs, and she simply interviews everyday women uh, because the idea is that every woman has the power to empower. Now, can you give us a little background into who you are, what you love, and what makes you tick? Who I am. So uh, you you kind of told a little bit professionally who I am. I am a Florida native, which is rare. Um, and I've worked with a bunch of different companies uh, throughout Florida, which has allowed me to, uh, to enjoy the beach, which uh, is something that is a big deal to me. And it's just uplifting. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and are you a notable woman or maybe just a notable human on this planet? Then you should call us and tell us what you're listening to. Ring up the pod line at 202-885-POD1. And honestly, even if you're not notable, we'd love to hear from you. J.D. Sampson's music career began with a slideshow. After college, she was hired to run a projector for the band La Tigra with Kathleen Hanna and Johanna Fateman. The band's live shows are more like performance art, and Samson was able to put her film degree to good use. Not long after that, Samson became a full-fledged band member. Latigar took a break in the mid-aughts, but Samson kept making music with a new band called J.D. Samson and Men. Plus, she also writes music for other people, including Christina Aguilera, Junior Senior, and a little podcasting outlet called Radiotopia. Samson is one of a growing number of established musicians to write music for podcasts. Nick Thorburn of Islands wrote the music for Serial. Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards composed the theme for the New Yorker Radio Hour. And Annie Clark, also known as St. Vincent, has consulted for This American Life. But scoring a podcast is not the same as writing a radio banger. There's some nuance to it, which Samson recently learned all about. J.D. Samson, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here with you. Um, so you have been in, in the music game for a long time. Do you remember when you first started writing music? Yeah, actually, it was an interesting kind of beginning for me because I was in film school. I studied experimental film at Sarah Lawrence College. Mm -hmm. My work with projection kind of brought me to La Tigre, and I was uh, helping them with their multimedia performance, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I did that for two weeks on their first tour, and mm -hmm. during those two weeks, Kathleen asked me to be in the band. So... <laughs> It That's was kind of amazing. Like you went from m making some films for them to like a full-fledged member. Yeah, I feel very grateful and lucky to have had the beginning in the music industry as I did. So then with our next record, we just all started fresh with Pro Tools. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, everything was analog. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was like we learned together. Mm -hmm. And lucky for me, I was very good at electronics and uh, learning about computers so <laughs> we we were all kind of on a similar page and I, I really Joe and Kathleen were just so incredibly patient with me and 
uh, taught me so much. It was it was a really cool moment in my life. So normally when you're composing songs, I'm guessing they have a beginning and a middle and an end. And so I wonder what are some of the factors that you had to take into account with this particular project in order to compose music, uh, in order to compose the music that you did for Julie Shapiro at Radiotopia, which were really just little stems. Yeah, I mean... It's funny, but I started off with some material, and Julie was like, mm, "More boring." And then I <laughs> like she sent wanted her you to make more. it more boring. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, sent her some more, uh, more boring, and it just like <laughs> we went through that process like ten times. <laughs> I am a fan of using a lot of different instruments mm-hmm. at once. Um, maybe I started with. 30 sounds and in the end there's like three so for me it was huge but it was a real lesson for me in kind of minimalism I guess Uh, and something that I've always wanted to do was kind of like pare down my production Mm -hmm. and focus on what's needed and I did really appreciate the criticism to be honest Mm -hmm. Um, as an artist sometimes you don't get that you know, people are just like, okay, this is your work. That's it. It's done. Right. Um, but I love when people criticize me. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, like, you know, you you make a lot of dance music. And mm-hmm. dance music is high energy and it's got a lot of um it's got a lot of instruments and it's you're just, like, amped, right? But this is yeah. not, that is not the music that you are charged with making. Here. No, I mean, I, I took some of the ad acapellas, I, I don't know, just like the vocal part of mm-hmm. the ads, um, to figure out kind of what the rhythm was. And for me, I found that the BPM or the beats per minute of those, uh, the rhythm of that speech was about half as fast uh, as the rhythm that I would normally create. Mm-hmm. And um, that was really hard for me because I had to work with different styles of music that I wasn't used to working with and I mm-hmm. kind of had to dig through my influences mm-hmm. I guess and did a couple tracks that were like jazz based and some that were reggae based and then one that you know didn't really have a rhythm at all because it didn't have drums and for mm-hmm. me that was like really really different mm-hmm it it seems like it was like a little like a little brain exercise for you. You had to stretch a little bit. Yeah, of course. Um, when you start working on it, you you realize that the people are actually paying attention to the ad, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they don't really want to hear like something really complicated in the background or something. You know, yeah that that was kind of a challenge for me too. I was like, well. Turn up the music. That should be louder. You know, <laughs> but no, yeah. no. It's, yeah, <laughs> it is. It is for the ad to rest in. Yes, you know? exactly. <laughs> um, now, when you when you listen to uh, to radio shows um, or podcasts, like something like This American Life, what do you think the yeah. the function of music is in in these in these um, in these shows? I think it really depends on the show. And um, there's some shows that are, feel very chaotic to me in terms of the music. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because although I might like the content of those shows, I get so distracted by the music. Um, <laughs> 
you know, when it comes in and out and it's loud and it's quiet and it's, you know, mm-hmm. um, I really appreciate like a gentleness um, mm-hmm. because it's a private space for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually a relaxing space, whether that's commuting or driving or, um, you know, sitting in the bathtub. <laughs> it's my quiet time. So I like the music to kind of fit in with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also kind of like podcasts where the people's voices are almost like a song. Mm-hmm. There's this one I listen to called Strange Animals. Mm-hmm. And um, I have no idea who it is. And there's no music in, in the um, podcast. It, but her voice is always going like this. <laughs> and I love it. Strange Animals Podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Strange Animals Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Shaw. This week, I wanted to look at a couple of animal mysteries that are supposedly solved. Imagine me cracking my knuckles to get down to business, because they're not actually solved, but you and I are going to solve them right now. If you do a search for mythical animals that turned out to be real, the water owl is on just about every single one. The water owl is supposedly a huge sea monster with the body of a fish and the head of an owl with big round eyes. I'm listening to this woman's voice and I'm I'm actually interested in the contact content, sorry. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm also interested in her songwriting mm-hmm. in a way. That's why I appreciate that there's no music bed underneath it. Yeah. Um, but I think that when writing these ad, you know, beds, I kind of really had to understand writing music as this bed for the human voice mm-hmm. and for the pace of the human voice. And that's why I really had to use the, the you know, acapellas or whatever, mm-hmm. because for me, it was it was such a challenge to understand, you know, at what uh, EQ, mm-hmm. um, whether that was mid-range or or like the mid highs kind of I had to duck out of that a little bit because that's where the human voice usually sits. Do you ever listen to podcasts and think like I'm totally being manipulated by this music right now? Yeah, that happens to me often. That happened to me today. <laughs> I quite like when a podcast uh or a series uses like a popular song that fits. Mm-hmm. I I really liked the S Town, yeah, you know, music. Mm-hmm. On March 15th, 1966, she had a red-haired boy, gave him a middle name after her father, Brooks, and brought him home to the 124 acres, to an old house with three chimneys in the middle of the woods. The summer is here at last. The sky is overcast and no one brings a rose for Emily. You mentioned that uh, that you like the music in S-Town. Are there other podcasts or radio shows you've heard that make really good use of a score? Well, I li- listen to Pod Saves America mm-hmm. all the time. Um, that's a big one for me. I think the music is pretty good. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm Don Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. <laughs> I think that the 
tag is good, but sometimes I wish that there was a, it was like different instruments or something. <laughs> and sometimes I think that the music is kind of an afterthought, whereas I think it deserves to be more than that. Yeah. I think that they're amazing at their ad spots. The presenting sponsor of Pod Save America is Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Do you guys know that the beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals? And the produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming? It's so funny, like, the responsible animal is, like, <laughs> always home by 10. See, now you pay attention to them because you because you had oh, to yeah. make music for them. So now you're critiquing everybody's yeah. ads. <laughs> I mean, I think that they make me want to listen to the ads. Yeah. When an ad comes up, I'm like, oh. <gasps> They're going to be so funny. (laughs) Well, J.D. Sampson, thank you so much uh, for hanging out with us and telling us all about, uh, you know, podcast composition and all your projects. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. J.D. Sampson is a musician and artist based in New York. To find out about any of the projects she's involved with, hit up biglisten.org. We've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Ah, no, fake news. (laughs) But before we let you go... It's time for Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the Apple podcast charts. But we're not looking at number one or even number 100. We are looking at number 289. And if your podcast has reached number 289, congrats, because that is a really hard thing to do, for real. Okay, 289 this week. It's called Losing 100 Pounds with Fit and Fat. All right, so let's get started. This is a podcast uh, hosted by a woman named Corinne Crabtree. How you doing, Miss Kathy Hartman? I'm doing good, Corinne. I think I'm doing a little better than you today, huh? Who apparently is a sassy, southern, and brutally honest lady. My cat's talking to us, too. (laughs) And apparently she went from weighing 250 pounds, and she lost 100 pounds of that. Blowing off a major milestone. I gleaned from this podcast that Corinne is actually very anti-diet industry. We do not teach things traditionally. And in her sassy southern accent might say that it is useless as a screen door in a submarine. (laughs) Maybe it was me who actually said this. I can't remember. Prior to her weight loss, she also called herself a hot mess express. Toilet central. And not because she felt like she was overweight, but because she wasn't eating properly and because she wasn't doing any exercise and she didn't know how to eat properly and she didn't know how to exercise. That is the river of misery. And she started going to the Y and she would walk on the treadmill for like 10 minutes and then get off the treadmill and be totally red-faced. Tonight's night I talked myself out of it. And she just kept going and going and going and she started planning her meals. Eat whatever. We don't want to waste them french fries. And she told herself when she signed up to run a 5k that the last place entrant is the girl on the couch. You were just full of epiphanies for me. I will say I am not endorsing any weight loss, anything, okay? You do you, friends. If you want to lose weight, cool. If you don't want to lose weight, cool. I am A-OK with all of it. Yes! Losing 100 pounds with fit and fat. Get on it. Or don't. Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go? Uh, yes, you do. And guess what? You can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Then we'll appear in your feed just like magic every single week. Seriously, you don't even have to lift a finger. Also, we have a newsletter. You want to read it? Hit subscribe on our website. Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R, Big Listen. Uh, the Mooch follows us, so you should too. 
Should you want to send us a love note or three, our email address is biglisten at wamu.org. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponce Rutch, and Abby Holtzman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was literally giving my dog a flea bath. I kid you not. Dave Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army-Navy, the band, not the store. Special thanks to Timmy Olmsted and Al Reynolds for always giving us a boost. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Orr, and is produced by WAMU and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final words from Marvin Yue. He is one of the founders of the Potluck Podcast Collective, an organization showcasing voices from the Asian American community. In recent years, he's seen a subtle change in the media landscape. The conversations shifted in the last couple of years from just diversity, which is like, oh, I hope I see an Asian face, to now representation, which is, oh, I hope this Asian face has character or represents someone, something more than just a stereotype. And increasingly, podcasts can play a role in shifting the narrative of Asian Americans in popular media. People listen to podcasts to get to be entertained, but also sometimes... Sometimes to learn. And if you're not Asian American, the Potluck Podcast Collective shows might teach you a thing or two. Here are a bunch of Asian Americans being entertaining. And, you know, these are our voices. These are things that we like, things that we care about, things that we think about. And, you know, through that, start exploring, you know, our community. And I guess opening yourself up to different perspectives and and realizing that maybe we aren't so different after all. And it can all start with just opening your ears. Thanks for hanging out, pals. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR.